Ryan Stanton here with a set frontline joined today with a special guest and actually part of our frontline author series. Um, you know, every few months we'll get us an author that has a good emergency medicine, uh, something that really revolves around our wheelhouse. And uh, this guest is actually around for trip two on this merry-go-round and uh, uh, Sam Quinones. And about actually very early in this, we talked with Sam about his book, Dreamland. And if you've seen any of my opioid talks over the years, whatever conference it may be, uh, it's always one of the four or five. At the end, I show the pictures of the books and uh, as the ones that must that be must read uh, for you. And for me, it actually, Dreamland hit home uh, because it was close to home, uh, based out of Portsmouth, Ohio, which is just about two uh, hours up the road from me here in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, but we have a new book out now, and I recommend everybody read this. This will be added to the back of my talks. Once again, that slide is going to get pretty busy here eventually, called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And interesting conversation. Reached out to him uh, almost uh, right away once I saw the book pop up and ordered it myself and uh, jumped right back and says, yeah, absolutely. Once we uh, get into 2022, let's uh, sit down and interview. So I appreciate you coming on, uh, Sam, and, and what's been keeping you moving during the pandemic? Because last time we talked, there wasn't a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Uh, great to be with you again. Uh, really good uh, to talk. Um, well, I tell you, one of the things, uh, the pandemic actually, in a strange way, and I hate to even put it this way, because it was, it's been so, so brutal for so many families in America, for me, it was, it was frankly not. Uh, being alone uh, is what writers generally do. And it's not, a, you know, I had a little writer room in my house. And, um, you know, every week I'd, I'd put on all kinds of garb and go to the grocery store and buy all the groceries we needed for the week. And then I come back and I really finished The Least of Us really because, honestly, because of COVID, because all the speaking engagements I had just evaporated and I was left, you know, okay, this is the project now that I've been handed uh, to finish. I would probably would not have been able to finish it otherwise. And so all of that was part of it. I, in the middle of, uh, of COVID about 10, well now 11 months ago, um, uh, the way I, 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 I be, <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but um <laughs> I took up um, uh, uh, the accordion. I began playing the accordion. <laughs> I love the accordion. You know, uh, it got a, it got a bad rap with the polkas of the 1950s. If you listen to some of the great Mexican music and uh, French music and zydeco music out of Louisiana, I mean, the, the accordion is just one of the greatest instruments of all time, and I love it. So I have now through Zoom contracted you know i have this wonderful teacher she's greek she lives in athens greece and she's magnificent she's classically trained and i'm taking lessons from her and i'm sounding okay <laughs> the best i could say but it's it was a way i kind of also got through COVID. it was just like okay i've got some time um to and, and you know so in between writing and then after the book was done i just was practicing a lot and so so that's my story. And I, I actually completely forgot about that Facebook post because there was one with you with with it. And I was like, 
did he know it before? Or I see that the music stand is, is running double duty right now with your two books on it. Well, the two main books you also have, you've had Dreamland, you have Dreamland, the young adult adaptation, and then most recently, uh, The Least of Us, which was uh, which was just written. And now The Accordion. So uh, look forward to- I also, by the way, not to, not to forget, um, it, uh, 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 th- those books have, have done much really, really well. But I do have two other books. I lived in Mexico for 10 years, which is really a big part of how I got into all this. Um, lived in Mexico for 10 years, and I wrote two books about, about Mexico, which I dearly love. Nobody read them. Um, but uh, so anyway, this is actually really the least of it, like my fourth book, really. Yeah, it, it actually, I saw those, those two, because that's actually where your story for Dreamland started, coming out of L.A. as a reporter, heading down to Mexico, living there for a while, and kind of getting in. Uh, to that whole environment. And then next thing you know, you're in Ohio uh, investigating the progression of the opioid epidemic. I don't know how you'd actually write. I have to say this, uh, after spending a lot of years now writing about drugs in America, I don't know how you'd really write about it if you didn't know about Mexico, because it's all Mexico. Now there's some, some other parts of the story, but mostly it's just the drugs that are coming out of or through uh, it's all Mexico. So, and that's actually going to be part of the conversation is the evolution of the uh, drug industry, whether it be the heroin to fentanyl, uh, fentanyl, the meth uh, evolution from the ephedrine to the P2P. You know, all of those types of, of transitions uh, are important parts of the story, and I completely agree with that. And, and something that we'll uh, definitely uh, chat about. And it's it's one of those things that. Um, I like the books, and one of the reasons I, lo- I love your books is because you're not uh, you're not a physician. You did not grow up in the medical world. You see it as uh, as a reporter, an investigative reporter from the outside looking in. And so, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are seeing it from our experiences in the emergency department on the front line front lines of healthcare, and you see it from uh, this outside almost with a youth youthful curiosity of why, of how, and why. Uh, not just what is the fact, and then pulling these stories. And as we talked about right before we got started, um, this book, it jumps around. And the reason it jumps around is because all the stories, for the most part, are tied together. Um, there's a tapestry that comes out of that, whether that is, you know, you're starting off uh, with Angie Manning or, or getting into uh, Starla, uh, Starla Haas. Um, or wherever it may be, all of those stories coming together. And you actually drew me in immediately, first paragraph, because you talk about the town that is 15 minutes from where I spent 20 years of my life, grade school, middle school, high school, college, medical school, first-year residency uh, in Johnson City, Tennessee. And you talk about Angie Manning. Um, you know, talked about her as, as a veteran USS Cape Cod uh, from Elizabethan. And really, it kind of leaves it there, starts off that story with Elizabeth. And it interestingly, just like with Portsmouth, just like with uh, other areas of the country you talk about, Elizabethan is one of those cities that was a huge booming area. North American Rayon was there, Bimberg before that. Um, North American Rayon, while I was in school, uh, collapsed, closed out. Basically, almost all the industry left uh, Elizabethan and then fell into a lot of those areas that you saw, those stories you tell of the Appalachians. Uh, kind of get into that, how that starting off with Elizabeth and Angie Manning and kind of that whole process connecting Dreamland to the least of us. Well, I, I I did not initially have a plan for the least of us. With Dreamland, I kind of more or less had a plan. Like, I'm going to write this story about these two ways of drug marketing, the, the, the pharma companies and the Mexican trafficking, heroin trafficking, that kind of thing. 
with this, my my editors were publishers were pushing me to say, hey, we need another book about this. It's, it's changing very fast and it's not going away. It's getting worse, et cetera. And so I so said, yeah, that's right. Let's do it. Um, so uh, along the way, though, one of the beauties of journalism, I find, is that you encounter stories that are completely unexpected. And to me, that is the great joy. It, it can be very difficult stories to listen to, but it is, it is nevertheless this extraordinary exploration that you have to always be attuned to and nimble enough to, to move with, right? And so I in, interviewed Angie Manning. Well, actually, her, her uh, married name now is Odom. Uh, uh, Angie Odom in, in, in Elizabethton at a, an abortion alternative clinic that she runs in, in there, which had really turned into a clinic of how to find places to, to place opioid-addicted babies that had been born to uh, mothers who were addicted and now were basically out of the picture. And so we had two hours of interviews and I was just, it was just like, you know, when, when you go around the country speaking, which I was in, I was in Bristol and, 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 and uh, Kingsport and some other places speaking, went up to Elizabeth and spoke with her. It was really just to kind of be open-minded, wide open. What, what am I, who can I talk to in these areas that make sense? And, she, and so I was, we spoke for two hours and she told me about this story about how she had, um, befriended this young woman who years later had had an overdose and basically ended up in a, uh, in a, in a, in a Florida hospital in a vegetative stage, state from which she would never recover, but she was pregnant and they cared for her in the, the neonatal ward and, 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 and eventually she gave birth and Angie ended up uh, with her husband, now both empty nesters really by this point, uh, adopting this little little baby and then also caring for the woman Starla Haas. Um, anyway, it was a it was a remarkable story, um, and and we spoke for two hours. And at the end, I kind of turned off my recorder, and we we're just talking. And and all of a sudden, she she begins to tell me this most remarkable story of the moment at 19 years old when she was literally tied to the end of a Navy cruiser going across the Pacific to the Philippines. Under the, the darkness, you know, all she saw was stars, and she came to the Navy uh, and, and very bitter uh, about a, a rape, about uh, how, you know various things in her life, and she was very bitter. And she, expect, she came uh, with this idea that she would be vindicated by God. She, she was under there. She was comes to God and say, you know, I'm right, right? This bitterness, this rage. This uh, that I'm feeling is right, you know, and instead what she told me, she began to feel it was the most remarkable story. I mean, I was, I'm not a Christian, but I was just so taken with the story of how she kind of like the bitterness melts away through God's love, you know, and she comes to feel God out there all alone and, and feel the love, patience, and, and, and all the bitterness leave and the, the love and the patience and the, and the warmth. Uh, oh, oh, come into her heart. I never forgot that story. And I thought to myself, that is the story that people need to read first. First of all, because they're going to come to a book with the idea, this is going to be about fentanyl and meth and the sinister forces. And the first story they're going to read is about a, a young woman out underneath the, the stars in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on this massive cruiser going across the Pacific um, finding, again, finding God. She was a child of a pastor, but she kind of had faded. 
and and uh, and was again her bitterness from all that had happened. And I'll let people read the story, but it was this. It's one of those beautiful, beautiful stories. When I told my wife, she started crying, you know, and that's what I'm also looking for. Whenever I tell my wife a story, she starts crying. That's good. That is good. We like that, you know. So um, it just, but it seemed to me like I want to start my, I want to be surprising in my journalism. I don't want to be kind of rote and predictable. And so I thought this would be a perfect way of starting the story. And then with each part of the book, excuse me, each, each section, with each section of the book, start it with another Angie and Starla story and then end the book with the final chapter uh, in their in their story. I don't want to give too much away, but the idea was very close to the point that I wanted to make with the story that we're faced with these sin sinister forces like drugs like fentanyl and meth. What is our defense? Our defense is in helping, you know, the least of us, working in small ways to make our communities better, not looking for the magic answer that's going to solve all our problems. And that's where the least, the least of us comes from, of course, the book of Matthew, which I was reading during my writing and, and uh, you know, the book of Matthew, the gospel and, and the Bible that, that said in which Jesus said that what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. It felt like Angie's story was so such a perfect crystallization of that. And, and so that's how it came to start the book. Well, you're definitely not going to give away the entire story because uh, Angie plays an integral role entwined throughout the book. Um, and whether it's with Starla, uh, when she ended up taking care of, partially taking care of Starla as she was in the nursing home, uh, or her daughter, uh, or the daughter that was born, Bella. Um, and in fact, I'll, I'll, that's actually how I'm going to wrap up this podcast is with that quote uh, that uh, she put on that cake and on the, on the marker. Uh, because that, to me... It really kind of it really boils down to what has evolved in the opioid epidemic, which is that humanization. In prior in prior uh, epidemics, and even within this one, initially, it was just it was dehumanizing. It became easier to be able to feel comfortable as a public because we made them lesser human. Uh, you know, some somebody swept under the rug, let them die, junkies, whatever. And the challenge with the opioid epidemic, and it's, it's one of the challenges we fight, we, we face, is with it being an overwhelming uh, Caucasian issue, is that there's this backlash that says, well, why didn't anybody care about African Americans or other populations that were involved in the past? And I think it was one of those things that with the, with the how much it perfused all of America, not just large cities, not something that we could sweep under the rug, something uh, everywhere that you could. In fact, I still remember uh, when we were putting together um, the programs here in Lexington uh, with a lot of the church, local churches, and actually inner city churches, we turned to the African-American uh, community and said, this is something that that has been dealing with uh, challenges over decades. You know, how do we come together? And there was another, where's one uh, downtown church uh, that said they weren't going to participate just because they didn't know anybody about it. There's, there was nothing. And then one of the uh, parishioners uh, of one of the elders uh, ended up overdosing and dying. And um, and next thing we know, they're at the table and said, oh, my God, we, just, we didn't realize this is everywhere, um, especially in these communities, small community, relatively small communities across the country. A lot of your books are about the evolution of the drug trade. Um, whether it be, you know, with Dreamland talking about heroin, 
from, from going from pills to heroin, the economics associated with it, the transition away from gang-based uh, selling and, and, and trading to more of a almost a Chick-fil-A service model uh, type approach to it. You talk about that a lot in this book as well, not just uh, going from the pills, and we'll talk about the Sackler side of Purdue here in a minute, but uh, going from pills to heroin to fentanyl, uh, which actually we transitioned about six months ago to 100% fentanyl. Uh, heroin wasn't even part of it anymore. And actually, I saw a post where you were in New York, I think at a, I can't remember if New York or LA, uh, in, a, in a homeless encampment, and uh, the guy bypassed the heroin and says only the fentanyl will do the job, um, as well as meth. Let's talk about that a little bit, how this has evolved and played an important role with our natural brain reward system and made this possible? Well, I think what's, what's, what, what I like to do in my books is make sense of headlines. Too often, I think, um, we read these headlines, we read these stories, and we don't understand what's behind them. There's a, there's a very important story that's behind a lot of this stuff. And, and really, it's the case of all kinds of new stories. We, we look at it, we go, we don't understand this. And so I try with my books to, to explain, uh, tell the stories that will explain what is behind these headlines and what is really behind the headlines we're seeing now in most of the United States, if not all of the United States, is that the Mexican trafficking world has evolved, morphed, moved away from largely dependent on plant-based drugs, marijuana, opium poppy, <clears throat> so on, and towards synthetic drugs. And they did, and they did this not because it made sense to the consumer. On the contrary, it they did this because it makes sense to traffickers. It's less risk, more profit. You know, th that, that is what their calculation is. So um, if you're making synthetic drugs, which are drugs that are don't never use a plant, they're just made in, in labs with chemicals only. Um, you don't need land. You don't need rainfall or seasons or sunlight or large groups of farmers harvesting. You collapse the supply chain down to very small uh, groups and, and you can make what you now need is um, uh, uh, shipping ports. You need places where you can get access to the world chemical markets. Some of those chemicals are made in Mexico, but a lot of them come from other places, China, India, but then the rest of the, the world as well. And so this clearly makes sense if you're a trafficker. And they learned this with methamphetamine. They figured it out along the way as they were providing heroin to our, our newly created very large population of opioid addicted consumers due to the opioid epidemic, the wanton, I believe, uh, overprescribing of, of uh, opioid painkillers all across this country by doctors pushed by drug companies. Mexican traffickers stepped in. Uh, first was the group that I wrote about in, in, in Dreamland, but then later, of course, everybody's joining. They see this market, everybody joins in. And then along the way, as they're providing heroin, uh, they figure out that there's this synthetic heroin, just like synthetic methamphetamine. You can make this substitute for heroin. It's called fentanyl. I write about it in the least of us the way the, the trafficking world figured out down in Mexico that there was this thing from this underground chemist who clues them into it. And, um, and basically, um, they begin, they, all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, you mean we don't have to grow poppies anymore? Oh, of course, let's do that, you know? And little by little, you, you begin to see them morph in, in, into that. But this is, and what that means is a couple of things. One is that they can now make these drugs 
according to how many chemicals they can get. Well, if they can get chemicals through these ports from all over the country and they control the traffic in the ports, which they do, do a large part to the problems of corruption down in, in Mexico, they can make these drugs in quantities that boggle the mind and they can make them year round. So no seasons anymore, right? And that is really what is what we are facing. That is why um, in ERs all across this country, your colleagues are seeing uh, people uh, overdosing on, on fentanyl up in Vermont, uh, uh, out in LA, uh, in rural Oregon, in Oklahoma. Um, and that is also why um, uh, you're finding that, that heroin is almost worthless now. People are addicted to fentanyl no longer can keep the dope sickness away by using heroin. So heroin is really worth becoming worthless. And I think very quickly, most of the country will be like Lexington, Kentucky, where, there, where as you say, there's no heroin anymore. I think mostly there's gonna be no heroin in this country because fentanyl is just too potent. And the, the supplies of it are so vast that, that they can now uh, 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 distribute it to um, much of the rest uh, uh, of the country. But all of this has to do with supply. It has to do with the interests of traffickers. It has to do with their ability now, because these are synthetics, to make these drugs uh, according to how many of the chemicals they can get, which is almost unlimited supply of chemicals, and, and do it then uh, year round. Again, no more seasons. And you talk about a lot of the uh, the potency challenges. And, and all of us in, in, in the healthcare side, we know about the potency of fentanyl. You know, when you're talking about doses of mi in micrograms versus milligrams uh, or grams, uh, you know, of certain substances, we know this is a super potent. And um, as this production of these uh, synthetic drugs picks up, you talk about how, you know, kind of the backyard chemist isn't made to make sure, you know, your street pharmacist doesn't care about, is re really isn't involved with quality control. And so you actually talk about, I haven't had a book that's had as many references to, you know, kitchen appliance, the magic bullet as this one. And you talk about how with liquids, it's great, but with looking at and mixing things such as powders uh, with fentanyl, especially when you're talking about the multiple versions of fentanyl, whether it's the Sioux fentanyl, acetyl fentanyl, uh, car fentanyl, you know, whatever it is that each hit that may be produced may be everything from, you know, one that, that hardly has any impact to the one that's going to be completely fatal because we're talking about a drug that has, you know, grains of grains of salt difference in, uh, in impact versus fatal. Exactly. And that's, that's one of, that's the first thing we found out about fentanyl really when it started really hitting big, which would be 2014 and especially 15 and then into 16. You, you may remember in your area, in Huntington, West Virginia, Cincinnati, various places, you began to see these clusters, 50, 80 overdoses in a weekend. And, and that was largely because they were selling mostly fentanyl powder out of Mexico or out of China. China was, was sending over the mail, which is stuff that doesn't happen anymore, but we can get into why. Um, China was sending, um, you know, a pound, a kilo to dealers here who would order over the dark web or over the open web sometimes too. And then um, a lot of the times they would sell it to Mexico and Mexico would send up fentanyl in powder form. The problem is with fentanyl, it's the first time in the history of drug trafficking in America where profit, lottery sized profits are connected to the ability of traffickers, mainly dealers at the lower levels to be able to mix 
the drug with something else because you can't sell a few grains of salt worth of fentanyl on the street. It has to be mixed with other things, even though the potency is really in those few grains, it has to be mixed into something else to make it actually saleable from hand to hand. And, and so um, you began to see these horrible mixing stations where people would mix it with, um, with uh, coffee grinders, or as I say in the book, a whole chapter on how the myth grew up that, that, that the best way the really good way, if you're in the know, to mix your fentanyl is with a magic bullet blender, the kind that you get at Target 29.95 on infomercials. By the way, we own a magic bullet blender. I want to say this. It's a fantastic little instrument. We use it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to sell magic bullets, but I don't want to give them a bad name either, just because a few fools decide to use it for. So, so the, the magic bullet blender became like the mythologized as this thing that you use, you should really be using if you want to mix, mix your fentanyl well. The problem is, it's probably the last thing you should mix your fentanyl in. You know, of course, these are, you know, PhD dissertations are written on pharmaceutical mixing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very exact science. And you mix powders by tossing them. You don't mix them with a blade. Blades don't mix powders, as you will find if you just put a powder in your magic bullet. And they mix liquids very, very well. But people had this idea that because it's in a bulb, you won't breathe the, the fumes. And so therefore, it's really a good idea to do. And what, what narcotics agents in various places around the country began to tell me is we're finding these mixing basements or kitchens or apartments or whatever, in which they've got like five, six, eight, ten magic bullet blenders. That's how they're mixing the fentanyl. Well, this is an awful way to mix fentanyl. Um, and, and that's why we had the first... Um, uh, 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 clusters, those clusters of overdoses you remember, remember from those years began to happen because uh, uh, of that. And, be, and, and what began to happen is because it's so bad at mixing powders, you get to, yeah, you get mixes that were grossly out of whack. And so you get some, play, some mix that had no drug in it and others, as I talk about in, in the book, a, a kid um, uh, from Akron, Ohio, a guy from Akron, Ohio, Tommy Rao, he had 1,800 milligrams of acetylfentanyl when he died immediately upon using this. He had survived for 15 years, I believe it was, 13, 15 years, using, uh, battling opioid painkillers and heroin, um, but he didn't last a, a month with, with when fentanyl was on the streets to the Akron city he returned to, where it's just where he grew up. And th that's the other thing, that, that there is no long-term fentanyl street fentanyl user you can i've met people who have been addicted and lived with heroin for 30 40 years that i'm i'm afraid doesn't exist uh in anymore the mix is too difficult to achieve day in day out for you to survive on on fentanyl that's 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 mixed of by by somebody uh, on the street or in in the mexican trafficking world and so that's that's really like the, 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 the lesson of this, of this story. There is no more recreational drug use. There's no more, you don't last on the street with fentanyl. Well, that's actually what one thing we talked about in uh, talks I'd done before was recovery. You know, when, when somebody hits rock bottom is when recovery begins. But you actually mentioned that can't happen with fentanyl. I think this was just like this guy's third time using uh, of the fentanyl. It was the highest that Ohio had ever seen concentration-wise. Uh, in the body. And we've seen that, uh, in fact, here in Lexington and other communities, we could actually 
when a hot badge, as you call a hot badge, came into town, you could actually follow the dealer uh, around around town, and, and you try to catch them uh, by the time you know before they exposed, because you could see these overdoses happening basically in a trail and follow it like breadcrumbs for the for the sake of not for not having a better term, unfortunately, but. You know, just those hot batches would come in. We'd see a lot of overdoses, uh, and, it, and it was very difficult. You also mentioned a, a major component here is in, in, a, in a lot of areas, Lexington, not as much with the methamphetamines, but you, you talk about northern, uh, northern Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee especially as well. We had this resurgence of methamphetamines, and it's not the first time. I mean, actually one of my favorite, uh, not favorite, but most interesting World War II documentaries is about the Perviton uh, that was used a lot by the the German soldiers and how they could, uh, with Blitzkrieg, how they could drive and drive because they're on methamphetamines. Um, And the problem was eventually it became to where they couldn't manage it in in a lot of the withdrawals and getting the supplies and whatnot. You know, this is a a drug that's been around since 1919 from Japan, from from ephedrine, from the ephedra plant. But you talk about, you focus quite a bit on that transition. Uh, from where we were with methamphetamines before to this new era of methamphetamines, mainly in the transition between how it's made and how people long-term prior would have some psychosis, but now we're seeing a, an almost immediate. Right. I think this is a, this is a, exactly, this is a, a huge change. And one, one that I've found mainly talking to people on the ground, some of them ER docs, but also recovering addicts, people who are working in drug counseling, uh, beat cops, um, all across the country. So it's part of this story about uh, about synthetics too. It's um, for a long time, the Mexican trafficking world had really industrialized the production of methamphetamine using the chemical ephedrine, which I'm sure a lot of your folks uh, know all about, synth- uh, a, a, a antihistamine. Um, and, and, and they reached quantities that were stunning uh, for that time. Uh, but but they, were never, they never had access to the amounts of, uh, of ephedrine that would allow them to really cover the entire United States. So the ephedrine-based method they made was mainly on the Western United States and up to the, never crossed the Mississippi River and didn't really cover the entire Western United States either. But there was a lot of it in LA and up the coast and Vegas, et cetera, et cetera, all these different places. And then in 2008, the Mexican government made ephedrine virtually illegal. All but a few chemical drug companies could could possess it. The imports of ephedrine dropped significantly. Um, you could still get it illegally, but it made what it really meant is that the trafficking world was forced to switch how it made methamphetamine to another way using another precursor that was not ephedrine known as P2P, phenyl-2-propanone, but just call it P2P for short. Um, P2P method has very few benefits over the, over the ephedrine method, um, except one, it, 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 only one. And that is that you can make P2P many, many different ways with a variety of combinations of chemicals. All these chemicals happen to be very easy to procure. They're all industrial chemicals. They're all legal and uh, they're all toxic. Or most of them are, are toxic. So um, what it means is that if you can get these chemicals, which are very easy to find in the world chemical markets, which you can now get through these ports, that you can make this, the, this stuff in quantities that boggle the mind, that out surpass anything you were p- capable of making with, methamph- with uh, ephedrine. 
given the amounts of ephedrine you're able to make. Um, and so that's what begins to happen beginning about 2009, but really revving up in about 2012, 13, 14 is when you begin to see these supplies hit capacity, um, explosion of new producers down in Mexico because they can get all the chemicals that they want. Now anybody can, can make it. There's a wide knowledge base down on the Western side of Mexico of how to make this stuff. Um, and so you begin to see just supplies explode. And this stuff begins to march across the country really in fascinating ways. 2013 and 14 in LA on the West, it's just covered the, the Western United States. By 2017, I would say it's in roughly your areas, uh, uh, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, et cetera. And then by 2019, it's even reached up into New England, which never had any meth at all, like, like you know, uh, uh, um, uh, New England, uh, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, et cetera. And along the way, um, amazingly too, not only do they cover the country in methamphetamine by, within these six or eight year period, this is six or eight year period, but they also, the price of meth drops by like 80% in most areas. And I think that's really what you found. I'm in Nashville right now and the price for, for a, a, an ounce of, of methamphetamine, not five years ago, 45 years ago, used to be $1,250. Now it's, now it's about 200, 225, right? So colossal dro drops in price. That was going to be my story. That was going to be the story that I was going to tell. Like, this is an amazing moment in drug production that they're able to produce this, cover the country, price drops. Why? And, and it all has to do with the synthetic nature of this. But then along the way, almost at the very end of my writing, I discovered that there's something else to this story that is mind boggling. And I suspect a lot of your colleagues listening to this will have seen this um, already. And that is that this methamphetamine, unlike the ephedrine meth, which was a party drug, was kind of like this euphoric drug. You felt on your game. Everybody was your new best friend and you just want to talk all night. Yeah, you stay up several nights. At the end of the fourth night, you're seeing these kind of shadow people over here. And you do this long enough and over a six, seven year period, you become like those mugshot posters where it starts out. You know, 2001, it's a, a, a person without any issues. And by 2007, somebody entirely different. That's, that's the ephedrine meth. Um, with this stuff that come in the P2P meth, as I found talking to people all across the, this country, including ER docs, um, it, it's accompanied, and I wanna use that, those terms carefully, we talk about why in a minute, but the, it's accompanied, not to say necessarily cause, I'm not sure what the cause is, no one knows the, the neuroscience on this because it's not been studied at all, but I'll just say it's accompanied very closely by rapid onset symptoms of very severe um, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. So very intense paranoia. Real, uh, you know, everybody's out to get, every black car you see is filled with FBI agents. There's people everywhere trying to kill you. Um, and hallucinations, all kinds of very difficult, you know, uh, you get stuck very easily. So you're up nine hours uh, working on a bicycle um, uh, bicycles and hoarding become really a big part of the of the of the meth world at this point. Um, as does uh, homelessness and um, um, tent encampments. Tent encampments become almost the perfect place then to live if you are, if you think the entire world's out to get you. The last place you want to be is in a is in a, a homeless shelter, enclosed place with all these people you don't know and everything. In these encampments where you get to know people and everyone's using the same drug and it's kind of like the cheers bar where everybody knows your, your nickname in a sense, you know, it's, it's, it's 
part of that. And so you, what you begin to see as this mouth marches across the country, you see this real increase in very rapid onset symptoms of mental illness. It's a, it's a jury's out on whether it's actual mental illness or just meth-induced mental, mental illness. I suspect it depends on the person, frankly. And then you're also seeing homelessness increase and you're seeing these tent encampments proliferate. And this is in areas with very high housing costs, but it's also in areas where the housing costs are not growing. And in the book, I talk about um, the town of, of Clarksburg, West Virginia, which clearly does not have the housing market that LA or Seattle or San Francisco does. And in, the, in that town, no homelessness until two, spring of 2017 when the meth shows, when this meth shows up and very quickly within a year, the downtown is teeming with people who are out of their minds. People who used to be housed, they used to, in fact, some of them used to own their houses, not have, have paid off their houses or their parents paid it off and they're just living in it or whatever. And now they're all on the, on the street, they're stripping abandoned houses of everything that makes those houses livable. So increasingly you see these houses pop up that you can't really live in anymore. And then they, they begin to burn because people need to, the, the, to keep warm and whatever. So you begin to see this thing all across the country in areas of, again, very well-known homeless areas like LA, Skid Row, et cetera, San Francisco, but also in small towns, Bernalillo, New Mexico, um, places in, uh, in West, West Virginia, again, that had no, no homelessness to, to, uh, to speak of. Now you're seeing these homeless encampments sprout up that are very difficult to, to deal with. And, and I believe that my reporting, uh, I'm, I'm uh, very convinced, let's put it this way, that my reporting has shown that this, these problems have intensified enormously with the march of this methamphetamine across. So in some cases, it's causing people to go homeless. In other cases, no matter what the reason that you're homeless, it's so prevalent that people begin using it and then getting out of homelessness is an extraordinarily difficult task at that point. So it makes homelessness more possible. It also makes, by divorcing you from reality, it also makes homelessness almost bearable as well. And, it, and, you, and you talk about the whole idea that uh, not only is it more rapid onset, uh, the old ephedrine meth, you're talking about, you know, five, six, seven years until somebody became homeless and developed a psychosis. This is almost, you know, within months. And then the challenge being you don't detox in a month. Uh, there's several references. You know, it's, the it's an interesting. Exactly. It, and this is what I've been finding more and more. I talk with people um, because even after the book came out, I don't stop. I'm a beat reporter at heart, you know, beat reporters, you don't stop reporting the story, you put out a story, you, you keep going. Uh, and so I was seeing this before I wrote the book, but uh, or as I was writing the book, but I also saw it since then, that it's very difficult for people to come off of the physical of cerebral effects, the, the effects on the brain, devastation to the brain. That, that this meth causes. It, it takes months. It's not like you sleep off the ephedrine meth and within two days of hard sleeping, you're, you're back to more or less normal. Um, this is another, another thing all, all together. And people, um, I was speaking with a woman in Southern Indiana uh, the other day, and she was saying, we have this entire house of folks that I'm, I'm, I'm connected to, she's working with, and where all these guys have lost the ability to do basic things like bathe and brush their teeth and know to turn off the oven once they're done with it. And, you know, it's this kind of stuff that the, the that meth, this current meth seems, again, because I don't know the neuroscience and I'm not, it's not been studied, 
um, seems to be le leaving in its wake as it's as it's marched across this country. And again, I want to focus on that just a little bit. There is no neuroscientific study on on the effect of P2P street seized. P2P methamphetamine has never been studied. There's no rat study, no mice study, no mouse study, no, no um, uh, a journal study. What I'm giving you is just basic street reporting, talking with people all across the country. But I want to say this too, that what's stunning about those stories is how similar they are. You could talk to someone in Phoenix or in Albuquerque and, and Southern Indiana and, and uh, Clarksburg, ten, uh, uh, West Virginia, sorry, and they will have almost the same story. It's a remarkable thing. And the more you do it, um, uh, I was just on a conference on a call the other yesterday with a, with a sheriff um, who has been a very kind of me, a great uh, guy, becoming more than a source, kind of a friend. And um, we were just, uh, you know, his wife had died and I was trying to comfort him and so on. We were not talking about this. And all of a sudden in the middle of it, he says, you know, we've just had this horrible problem with meth nowadays. All these people are going out of their minds. And I did not ask him about that. It's just that this is the new reality faced by people on the street, like a lot of your colleagues, I think. And I think everyone, you know, every emergency physician, uh, frontline healthcare worker out there kind of can relate to these stories of the psychosis that you see uh, more often now uh, with meth that we did see over the last few years, this, this giant spike. I want to hit on two things. Of course, I don't want to give away the whole book because everybody needs to get the book and read it. That's how you're going to make a living. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, we, so we're definitely, there's, there's, we're, we're touching on these major topics, but, you know, getting in, into the book and the stories that are there, the personal stories are huge. But one thing that carried over, so two topics, one being a continuation of one thing we talked about in uh, within Dreamland, and then finally kind of where do we go, kind of a message of hope, because um, I think we should always end with a message of hope. Um, one was we talked about a lot in the book, uh, in Dreamland, uh, about Purdue Pharma. And really about how, as they built that uh, pharmaceutical company, insulated themselves, especially the board, which was a lot of family members. Arthur Sackler had passed away a number of years, well before uh, OxyContin ever hit the market. And you have other, uh, especially Richard Sackler, uh, in there really pushing. And we all remember when they had their first lawsuit, they came around, that's when they sponsored some of the education programs on opioid use, but then really rebranded in 09 and doubled down on this and really focused on OxyContin. Um, and not as much about them with that, but really what kind of pushed that tide, whether it's Maggie Rowland in Tennessee, Brant Harrell in, in Dallas, Massachusetts, uh, with Mara Healy, how did that actually change that finally we get the board exposed, the the leadership exposed? And you know what I think happened was, and this is my this I'm going to tell you this because I lived it. When I was writing Dreamland, um, I was overwhelmed by the fact that nobody wanted to talk about this topic. It was like the early days of the AIDS epidemic, you know, when families in particular I'm referring to now. Uh, did not want to talk about, you know, how their son died of AIDS, you know, you want in the obituaries. Well, the same thing was true with opioids. I just could not find people, it was very difficult to find people who wanted to be public with their story. And so the whole thing was kind of hidden. And therefore, it's very easy to go about life not, not understanding that this was a major issue all across the country. Hey, it's, it's for Appalachia, it's hillbilly, heroin, and all that stuff, but it's not us, you know, it's not here in Orange County, California, and all that. Well, the, when the book comes out, what I was stunned to see was that more and more, this was used as kind of a detonator for awakening. And so people began 
to come out of the shadows where they had lived for months or years, perhaps, in great, great pain because their family member had, had been addicted or sometimes died or what have you. And so what was remarkable was as they began to come out, I really consider this to be one of the great social grassroots movements of our time, except for it's not noticed because there's no organization, there's no press release, there's no spokeswoman or anything like that, right? So um, I began to see this happen. It was remarkable. And I saw it, it reflected in my own life, but began to get more and more and more invitations to come speak different parts around the country, right? And so I began to do that. And along the way, I began to see this as well, more people coming out. And what this did, though, very important in all this, 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 was, this created political change in ways that people aren't really quite aware of, they need to be aware of, that this small movements by people out of the shadows in small steps created a political climate in which politicians had to take notice, mayors, state legislators, governors, senators, as well as attorneys general. And those attorneys general begin to say, what can we do? Well, they begin to apply their really their extraordinary power of subpoena. They can subpoena records, they can start investigations and they have staffs that are well-trained in investigations. And that's what begins to happen. And increasingly you see these attorneys general come out and begin to do this investigations. And you begin, and with that, all these new elements to this story that I could never, as a, as a lowly freelance writer traveling the country alone, could ever have gotten access to, now come out and they're public and they're readable in narrative form on these criminal complaints. Two of the best, and I strongly recommend people read these, are from the state of Tennessee against Purdue and the state of Massachusetts against the Sackler family and Purdue. And you can 277 pages each of these, and it is a remarkable, based in remarkable narrative based entirely upon uh, subpoenaed records and internal reports. And all, I mean, it's just amazing to me. I read this, and what comes out of it uh, uh, is this is why I had to kind of I thought I had to inc include something on the Sacklers in this book. So there's five chapters on the Sackler family using really the new data, the new information that's been coming out because so many attorneys general have, have, have taken notice of this problem because so many people have awakened and come out of the shadows on this, is this whole new narrative of what happens to the, what, the, what Purdue and the Sackler family uh, does to promote sales of OxyContin after that lawsuit. From 2007, when they, when they resolved that lawsuit, that criminal lawsuit, pleaded guilty, paid $634 million. They didn't stop. They double, as you say, doubled down. It became, what was striking to me was that the pressure became more intense to sell OxyContin. It, and, and even as the, the amounts of money that were being funneled from Purdue to the Sackler owners who were on the board and their family members were hitting you know, 500 million a year. Then at one year in 2010, almost $900 million, there still was this pressure, gotta sell more, gotta sell more. What's ended up, the very strong feeling I got from reading all that is that the Sacklers, you know, they had all the money in the world. They had no debt. They could have diversified. They could have bought other drugs and just that made themselves into this very diversified drug company. They didn't do any of that. The only thing they ever considered doing was more stuff in the opioid space. You know, it's almost like an addict. They couldn't foresee life without opioids, you know, and this was, uh, they, they were just, it seems, feels to me, 
reading these very voluminous reports and, 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 and other stuff, it feels to me like they were just as addicted to the cash as any street addict is addicted to, to the opioids or the, hair, hair, the pain pills or the heroin or now, now fentanyl. It was a remarkable thing. There was all kinds of moments. They hire even a new CEO whose who's, who's mandate, let's diversify, let's do, you know, that guy lasts three years, he's blocked at each point, and then he leaves to spend, quote, quote unquote, more time with his family or go on some other venture, whatever. Um, it, it just was striking to me how it doesn't matter what part of this story you're in. If you're involved in the sale and use of opioids, uh, very quickly, it becomes your entire life, you know, so use or sale, whatever, um, that's what, that's what happened, but there was no relenting on the Sackler families on the on the Sackler family members on the board. It was just keep pressure. What can we do to sell more? What can we do to get doctors to up the 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 dose? Because the more they up the dose, the longer those patients are going to be on on our oxycontin, which uh, which was ninety percent of their sales. You know, so it was a it was a fascinating thing to behold as you read this. These again data that was only made public because so many people began to come out of the, 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 the shadows and, and their presence and hearing those voices is what prompted politicians to act in more, more um, very, very uh, uh, forceful, forceful ways, including uh, Sue, both Purdue and the Sackler family. And I think it's very interesting that you mentioned, because I thought the exact same thing when I was reading the book, was that the behaviors of the Sacklers on the board was like an insatiable addiction to profit margin. It didn't matter how much money they got, it still wasn't enough. So one hit is too much and never enough, that kind of thing. I, that idea you find in, 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 the, in, the, in, in addiction recovery, it's, it, it comes through very clearly. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, this, and for most of us as physicians, the, the majority of people listening right now are going to be physicians, and probably the majority of you never saw an OxyContin rep. And that was actually very purposeful uh, because the target was the top 10% of prescribers and knowing that you could get a lot higher margin with those that uh, could push that envelope of prescribing more and more and more. Uh, and so that's definitely worth a read because I think it translates not just to opioids, but to pharma in general and some of the behaviors and figuring out how to manipulate uh, the behaviors of physicians and providers. Um, you know, looking in, into those techniques and those skill sets, and you actually talk about some of the fast food related uh, marketing and those types of things. This is very real and something that we need to uh, consider as physicians. But you also mentioned this transition, the awakening. Uh, everybody thought they were alone. You know, the, the, the obituary that said the 24-year-old died suddenly in their sleep. Uh, you know, everybody was there, but there was thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that, of people and families who'd gone through similar situations, and this woke them up. And one thing, and the reason I want to end on this is because it is kind of a story of hope. You start um, the whole book, uh, well, Dreamland, focusing on Portsmouth, Ohio, and you actually end the book, near, nearly the end of the book, coming back to Portsmouth. Um, and how it has become a destination for recovery. That difference between 2013 and 2019, people wanting recovery, asking to go to Portsmouth, Ohio. And is it perfect? It's not perfect at all. But what it demonstrates is what it takes to get out of this. Because you know, one of the big things that we mentioned and what we'll talk about with the next guest will be the logistics of returning to life. It isn't just stopping the drug. It's how do you get somebody back into life? 
and all the challenges. And I think what we're seeing here, Portsmouth, which was the symbol of the opioid epidemic, is now becoming the symbol of opioid recovery and how communities come together to build that. And that's, that's exactly right. And that's why I chose to end The Least of Us with this last chapter on Portsmouth, because it seemed, again, yes, the, the town is got some very serious problems. And I don't want to be uh, uh, portrayed as someone who's, who's glossing over those uh, poorly paying jobs, not enough jobs, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, a, a, and a drug supply that's unrelenting, just like every place else, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot poor education, that kind of thing. But what's amazing to me, and the reason I did this was because um, in Portsmouth, what you find is recovery on the small scale that I believe is healthier than saying, well, we've got this big solution to our problem. No, there's a lot of people finding each other with the same kind of energy, like we've been obese, the most obese county in Ohio, let's start CrossFit. And so now you have several CrossFits, including a Dreamland CrossFit which was named for the, the swimming pool that was the focus of my, of, of, of my, of my book. Um, uh, you get people, not just that though, you know, they, they built the first uh, cafe where people could actually come and meet together. The first place in Portsmouth since the swimming pool closed and was dug up in 1993, that people in Portsmouth have a place to come together and meet and see each other, right? It's an amazing thing to, to uh, spend time at this cafe. It's a wonderful cafe. It's like any independent cafe, any, any place in the country, wonderful place, great coffee, great tea, et cetera. Just go there if you get to Portsmouth. Um, it's called the Lofts. Um, and, and so um, you, get, you get these people too, who are kind of all in the same mindset. A couple of guys in the former military who were, um, uh, one was in Afghanistan, the other was in, was in uh, Iraq, each in their own way, helping to rebuild towns in those countries and now coming back and using that same kind of grit and energy and imagination, creativity to figure out ways of, of recovery within Portsmouth. So re, what you see is small companies starting up. No big, the days are over when a factory had come to town with 250 jobs and you put them on the front cover of the front page of the, mag, of the newspaper. Now, it's people starting companies with three employees, five employees. And those that's like little sparks and synergy that begins to, to, to happen. Then you begin to get guys, um, one of these uh, veterans uh, in particular, um, uh, Tim Wolf, uh, begins uh, to rehab all these old brick, beautiful brick buildings that have lain empty for 30 years, right? And now they're new places, they're apartments, there's a restaurant, et cetera. All these different places um, start coming to life that once had been dead. And it started though, by the combination of people coming together, both looking to recover from dope and from the economic doldrums and seeing once they start getting, getting together that all these new ideas become possible. But it happens in small scale, it happens in miniature. It's not started by some magnanimous person coming in and, and saving the town in some Hollywood way. No, this is all about small scale stuff. And that's why I, I, I uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the fentanyl and the meth in this, in this conversation, but that's really why I filled the least of us with least of us with half, half the book is really made up of people doing these small things, these small stories like Angie Odom uh, in her own small 
small way. It's that that is the the salvation. That is our defense against these very toxic forces that are coming at us constantly. It's understanding that we need to rebuild community in the way that we've done what we've done so much to shred uh, in, in this country. Beat down and ignore the ways we come together. You know, now we're seeing people in the smallest way attempt to rebuild this. And to me, that is, that's like the, the lesson of this opioid epidemic, the pandemic as well, is that we need to get back to that. And that is where our defense lies. It takes time. It's not magic by any means, that's the whole point, but it's solid. And that's what you're seeing in, in Portsmouth. Not to say that there's no problems there. It's just saying that you're seeing lots of people now kind of coming together in ways that are very, very, um, uh, uh, I, I guess, I guess, solid, and they they mean something in in the in the long run. And and to me, so to me, that was the 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 point that I wanted to make as I ended the book. Don't wait for for some magic answer. Just come together and find in the way they're doing in Portsmouth these little things that can be done. And that reminds me of a couple, you know, things as you know that with the eating the elephant one bite at a time. You know, each of these evolutions within Portsmouth is one of those bites. Um, and you know, as one of my favorite sermons I heard from my local uh, church here was, you may not be able to change the world, but you can change somebody's world. And so each of these represents just that small piece to put lives back together. And you may not have, whoever you are out there may not have the ability to get somebody from addiction to complete recovery, but we can all take a small piece and eventually build that bridge. And once we build that bridge, we can reproduce that bridge. And that's what you're seeing with Portsmouth is, is whether it's through the building, whether it's through the jobs, whether it's through the fitness, whether it's through every single person you talk about, built, put a little small piece of that bridge back in. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that's, that's kind of the, the idea that I had with this book. That's, that was kind of the governing idea if I had one when I began the book, which is to say, uh, we got into this problem because we wanted one magic answer to all our problems. And what was the magic answer? Pain pills to eradicate all pain for every human being. Well, of course, that we could see where that ended up. It was fine for some people and for other people it was disastrous. And for the country, it really was not overall, I don't think, a, great, a, good, a good thing. It was a, a, a real, real, real problem, continues to be. And so it felt to me like this was, you know, it's that small thing. Like, yes, right don't worry that you're not saving the world in some noble virtuous way right and 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 pay attention to things that other people are doing so you can add a little bit of your energy to their thing so in portsmouth they did a kind of a downtown re, uh, re renovation in which they painted all the the the, the curbs and they added plants you know, it's helped. If there's four people doing that, everyone thinks, oh, nobody cares. If there's 40 or 400, as there actually turned out to be, then it's like, oh, yeah, you know what? We're all in this. There's that synergy, that energy. So add your energy to what other people are doing and, and see if that doesn't help bring about something larger. Like I've always thought that, you know, when we're in isolation, solutions seem, problems seem insoluble. Together, when you come together, there's that, that synergy, that innovation that begins to happen when people come together, that all of a sudden those, those problems don't seem so towering and the solutions seem a little bit more possible. And that, 
that if there was a again if there was a roadmap there was a game plan to this book it was to try to illustrate that the drugs are menacing they are worse than ever they are deadlier more mind mangling than ever what are we to do get back to what helped us survive as a species which is you know we do not survive as a species uh, without that feeling of communal working together it's messy it's it can be difficult. We don't like each other sometimes. I don't like that guy because I don't believe what he believes politically, blah, blah, blah. He's a different religion, on and on and on and on. But what really helped us survive, the reason we survived as a species and now dominate the planet is because we had that community sense. It's just that in the United States, the last 30, 40 years, we had this idea, well, that those old ideas don't apply to us. No, we can go it alone. We, don't, we can live in our big houses on our screens all the time. It won't be, won't be a problem. It was, you know, that's exactly what the opioid epidemic was. It was this idea like we, the old rules don't apply to us. We know that, that stuff from the opium poppy is horribly addictive and a great painkiller. And then, and then we decide, well, the old rules don't apply to us. We're now only, it's now just a, a great painkiller and it's not really all that addictive anymore, according to what we chose to believe. So anyway, it's, it's just part of the, the, the message of the book that I, I took very much to heart. And that's where I, that's why I look for the stories and fill the stories with the, with the stuff that's in the book. Talking with Sam Quinones, and uh, you can get the books basically anywhere, uh, Dreamland as well as The Least of Us. Um, I would suggest both of them. And actually, if you haven't read either of them yet, fantastic back-to-back because it is a, good, a, fa- a great continuation of the story, and you do pull in a lot of the uh, opioid-based. How can folks get in touch with you, page-wise? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on social media a lot, as I guess every author has to be. Um, uh, Sam Quinones journalist. I'm at Twitter, Sam Quinones seven. I'm on Instagram, which I'm using a little bit more now on Sam Quinones underground uh, underscore author and my website, or, uh, you know, I'll just give you my website is samquinones.com. That's S-A-M-Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S.com. My email, I, uh, um, I'm very interested in hearing people on the front lines, like a lot of your your, your, your listeners, I'm hoping, uh, I, 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 I live and breathe hearing people like those folks tell me their stories uh, of authentic, uh, you know, real life uh, work in, in this world. So my, my email, I'm happy to give it out, at Sam Quinona 7, the number 7, my name, the number 7 at yahoo.com. Feel free to get in touch and, and tell me what you are seeing in your w- world when it comes to all the stuff that we've been talking about today. And Sam, I, I really appreciate it. And social media, you can see him as well as his travels and accordion uh, at the same time and follow along with the progress. And, and I really appreciate you joining us here uh, once again and, and helping add your piece uh, to this transition and hopefully path out of the opioid and drug epidemic. So thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure, uh, Ryan. Thank you very much. It's been great talking with you. We're joined now uh, for the second part of our interview today uh, with Rob Perez. And as I talked about with uh, Sam Quinones, um, much of his book, the central aspect of the book and the very end of the book, talking about some of the uh, projects in his book about Ohio, Southern Ohio, getting into Portsmouth, Northern Kentucky as well, um, of the small steps. And as was noted in the book, the logistics of the return to life. Uh, So basically, you know, it's not as easy with the opioid epidemic or addiction uh, to just simply go from um, to go from addiction to recovery. There's a lot of steps and things and logistics in there. 
And uh, a lot of that's very challenging. And many times that return to life has a lot of uh, speed bumps, uh, barriers, walls, uh, various sizes, and each of which is an opportunity for that person to be taken off the path of recovery. And I, I brought Rob Perez. He's, he's local uh, with uh, me here in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, he's the head of, still has a fantastic eatery, one of my favorites here called Saul Good, but also then um, really developed Deviate Kitchen. And I'll let him talk about that a little bit. So uh, Rob, one first and foremost, thank you for joining us today on the front line, but also kind of give us a background of, of your life as a restaurateur and then into this adventure of Deviate. Right on. Well, thanks for having us. Um, so the idea of Deviate really wasn't mine. It was my wife's. Um, we um, are died in the wool restaurant people. I've been doing it my whole adult life. And my wife is, uh, has been, that's how we met, is in a restaurant. But uh, we had noticed that in the three restaurants, it's all good that we had at the time in Lexington, that we were losing people. And we had got to the point in our life where we were trying to, to do all kinds of stuff, like really try to figure out how to make a difference for our community, but express our faith. And, and we really thought that it was kind of cool to think about your, uh, your business as an opportunity to give. So she says, hey, look, why don't we open up a restaurant that serves people that are just at the beginning of substance use disorder? Um, you know, we have this whole opiate ec epidemic going on. I mean, this is the time to do it. And because, uh, because I don't have the heart that she has, and I first think about everything as, as a business guy, the first filter that goes through my head is, how can we make money at that? There's no way that this is going to work. And so I shut it down for a couple of years and uh, she kept on pestering me at it and, and trying to give me reasons to do it. And basically she finally broke me down and we opened up a restaurant and we didn't know what we were to do different. And we did everything exactly the same way we did at every other restaurant. And it was a miserable failure. We were about ready to go bankrupt but we had to kind of start figuring out the business model and we eventually did. And um, now uh, it's successful. Uh, we're a bakery uh, restaurant um, and um, we only are open for breakfast and lunch so that folks that are in substance use disorder recovery can, you know, can deal with their program at night. But we try to pay a really fair wage uh, that's better than average. And uh, we try to really perform at a, at a level where it's 20% better than our competition so that people might eat at our restaurants and go, wow, maybe I could have a second chance, uh, be a second chance employer too, because this product's good, the service is good, the atmosphere is good. And we're really trying to change really people's minds one meal at a time. Well, let's talk about you, you mentioned you know second chance employer. And of course, for you, it's it's a challenge. Opening restaurants is not easy by any stretch of the imagination ever, uh, but much less when you're coming at it with a relatively completely different model of who your employer, who your employees will be, and kind of the model uh, that you're going to build. Uh, talk about some of those challenges that you saw with bringing in uh, those recovering from a substance use disorder 
as your employees, not only the challenges they face in reacclimating and getting back into the workforce, uh, but also then kind of those growing pains and transitions uh, as you as you not only uh, bring them in and give them a chance, but also then have to answer to the restaurant mandate, which is great food, great service, great value. You know, initially the biggest hurdle was me even accepting that we needed to do this because I'm just like any other employer, you're kind of going, okay, I'm dealing with someone that doesn't have a have really a good background or track record in employment. There's gaps in employment. Uh, sometimes the performance that you would get with someone that was in active uh, addiction is not good. And many of the folks that we employ currently, you know, 70% has incarceration, 40% is from generational poverty. There's some, there's some, there's really some obstacles that you have to try to figure out. Initially, I didn't think that we could overcome it and that turnover would be really high and it would be a problem that you couldn't overcome. But the, the, the second chance employee knows this too. And so there's a lot of self-defeat and there's a lot of, I'm not even going to help this as a business guy because it's just too big and we can't figure it all out. And really the biggest barrier for me and for the employee is believing that it can work. And just that starting point and that opportunity that you give is really, really critical, believing that you can do it, that it's not a, a lost cause for both the person that's coming out of substance use disorder and into recovery and for the employer. And I, I think that that's the biggest hurdle for all of us to kind of overcome. And then once that folks are employed and you're the, the second chance employer, you have to try to figure out the difference between really what are you, uh, what kind of employer are you? Are you a transactional employer or a relational employer? Because I'm finding that trying to help people that are coming to, coming out of substance use disorder and into recovery, it's interesting because it's really about trying to provide an environment that's both caring but accountable. And it's really reparenting if you kind of make it really simple. Here's what your opportunities are. This is what the job is. This is a good job. And if you do that, here's pats on the back or extra you know, responsibility. But if you don't do it, how do you appropriately hold responsibility uh, to that person, to that task? And I, I liken it to just like, Samantha and Calvin Perez, my kids. I, I feel like that's what I have to do more than maybe an employer. I don't believe that Diane or I ever crossed the lines in terms of becoming codependent or establishing an environment that uh, is inappropriate for a work setting. But the amount of time that I put in is not big, but it's different than the other, like for Saul Good, for example. What we do is we try to sit down and explain to them and ask them why and get to root cause analysis. Why did it work? Tell me about it. Why didn't it work? And tell me about it and let them come up with their own solutions. But having that conversation to figure out the whys of everything becomes relational, not transactional. If you're late three times, 
I don't just fire you or Diane doesn't fire you. We sit down and find out why. And that process is magic. And it's exactly what folks need. And it's not any harder than that. Not any harder. It's exactly that. And whatever the chips may lay, whether or not you work with someone a long time or, or whether you have to terminate the relationship, it, it's all a learning process. If you I'm glad you actually brought up the whole, um, the whole almost reparenting, uh, because that's actually mentioned in the book a number of times. It's talking about the chemistry associated with the reward pathway, especially opioids, but methamphetamines as well. Uh, with opioids, basically reprograms, takes over this very primitive me first, kind of pushing out and walling off the prefrontal cortex, which is the cause and effect, uh, the serotonin aspect, which is the satiety aspect of the brain, the satisfaction of contentment side of the brain, and really goes to that me first. And so it really absolutely is because that's what we see in uh, young folks, especially teenagers, is that reward pathway is very strong, but the prefrontal cortex is not completely evolved at that point. And so they don't have that stopgap. They don't have that thing that says, what are the risks and benefits? What does it mean? What's the relationship? What does it mean on the grander scale? Um, and so recovery isn't about immediately stopping a drug and going to normal adulthood again. It really is about those baby steps. Talk a little bit about that. Not only that you mentioned a little bit that kind of that flexible responsibility of of kind of working together to understand why and where people are, but also talk about when you bring in somebody who's new and and, and relatively young in the recovery process of that growth and maturation uh, as they start to work at DVA. Yeah, for example, uh, the reason Diane thought it was good for us to specifically uh, target employment for people in substance use disorder is I went through rehab at 25 and she helped me through that. And I found that the, the baby steps were actually pretty big for me. Um, I was the general manager of a big restaurant in Dallas, Texas and thought socially I was okay. But the reality of it is, is that since I was 14, I was either high or drunk every time I was in a social environment, and I was terrible at it. So when I figured out that I really needed to go through rehab and, and actually did it, I found myself in social situations where I knew I needed to find different places, people, and things to relate to. So I needed a different friend group that didn't drink a lot and that didn't you know, do drugs a lot. So... When I was searching for this, I was a failure. I was an absolute failure. And I had to relearn how not to, to try to show everybody the virtues and the benefits of being my friend that I brought to the table, but find out like truly about the next person. Like, like if I just asked a million questions and was sincerely interested in you, Ryan, you would probably end up liking me. But if I told you all the reasons why you should be my friend because of what I could bring to the table, it's a disaster. But I guess I didn't even know that. And I was 25 years old. And um, just learning that little tiny small step in life is something that we run across, you know, at Deviate all the time. And we build systems um, for our people who are dealing with customers to try to understand how to put the customer first, how to ask questions that are about them, 
And a small little thing at restaurants happens all the time with customers is trying to convince a staff member that when a guest says, so tell me about your favorite menu in the eye uh, on the menu. The reality of it is, is that the customer doesn't care what the, what the, the people want. It's either a delay, you know, they're trying to stall so that they can look at the menu or they're really asking, what do you think I would like? And so when one of our big burly guys that are working get asked by a small middle-aged woman what they would like, and they say, oh, well, the burger and the uh, pimento chicken sandwich is my favorite. Does that help the guest? You know, what if we contemplated it differently and said, okay, I'm just guessing that potentially the Monte Cristo sandwich or maybe the, the chicken salad sandwich would be a better option for them. And what they're asking me sounds like they're interested in what I'd like, but really they wanna know what they want. And that process is part of learning life, not only life in a restaurant, right? And so that's a huge learning that if you can apply specifically to what we're doing in a restaurant today, but a larger context in life is a small step that turns into a gigantic step. And that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, so much of addiction is about being isolated and de-identified. And, you know, so much for people in that human condition is that community and giving somebody value, you know, that they feel like they have intrinsic value. And unfortunately, I feel like with drugs, it's so much, you know, no matter which one it is, you know, addiction of any type, it takes away who you are, that personal identity, that personal value. And so much of what we see in the emergency department is somebody that's really devoid of hope. And it's that initial little nugget of hope, of value uh, that you put on a human being. And I think that's that important aspect of asking those questions, uh, of, of saying, wow. And I, I can imagine you as a restaurateur, you and your wife, uh, as the owner of these restaurants and these folks coming in where they've just been, whether it's a number, whether it's, you know, just been isolated, you know, and asking and actually engaging in, in wanting their stories and who they are how they got to where they are, really finally it's like, oh my gosh, somebody cares about me and who I am. And then that becomes that two-way street. And then, of course, working in that setting allows them to, to build those skills of being able to pull those, uh, pull those stories out uh, with them as well. So talk about some of that, some of that growth, you know, because I think to me, if I was in this setting, which you never want me to, you would never want me to start a restaurant ever. I mean, I'm pretty good for fitness and chili. That's about it. But everything else is, is the, to me, the, the reward would be seeing somebody's growth. You know, that, that time from time where you're, you kind of talked about that young teenager type view coming into your workspace to that maturation and that growth and that leadership and really starting to get their wings again. It's spectacular, by the way. But it's funny because the extension of our earlier, you know, previous conversation about, you know, trying to contemplate other people is the real growth happens when the aha of that conversation with another person happens and then the reward within the person that is giving it. So one of our employees that has that conversation and sees that the 
the door opens when he talks to the, the middle-aged woman and that she's thrilled with her meal, that light clicks on and they're like, holy moly, this really works, right? And then they start thinking, well, maybe my issues in the past was that addiction or the lack of a parent, uh, a good parent model, or I was absent as, a, as I was becoming independent and didn't listen to my family, or I was high during it. And then the addition of maybe incarceration where you have to be me, me, me focused. You, this whole process makes you very me-centric. And once you realize that, that if you concentrate on others and have some service before yourself, everything starts to work. So that one light clicks on with the woman with the chicken salad sandwich. And then they think, how can I help my coworker? How can I serve them? How can I help them first and then get mine? And you see that, that when you do that, the work that you do in the restaurant gets exponentially easier and the benefits get better for both the owner, the customer, the coworkers. And then when one person sees that, they mimic that as well. And then pretty soon, if all of the folks are doing that within the, the confines of the restaurant, it's an easy shift. It's a fun shift. You work for other people and the greater good. When you do one thing, it grows again exponentially because everybody else is mimicking it. I know that sounds really weird, but that's what happens. And then when you could understand how to take that back to your recovery center and try it there, if you could take it back to where you're trying to reintegrate into your family unit and take it there and realize that it's not about you that it's about everybody else. Because you can control yourself. It's really difficult to control the world around you. But you can if you focus in on the world around you first and realize that it's not only about you. It's about others too. And that realization is gigantic. And our folks that really embrace this way of life, it, it's unbelievable the, the growth that happens in a very short period of time. And pretty soon the, the path to recovery gets easier and there's rewards, life gets easier, life gets more full, life gets a lot more opportunity. It's pretty great. Well, an entire work workplace is, you know, 180 degrees of difference with engagement versus paycheck, you know, coming in just for the paycheck, uh, click, you know, the clock in, clock out aspect as opposed to that full, uh, full engagement uh, in the environment. And I, I don't know that I had recalled uh, or had heard uh, known of, of you be going walking this path, that walking that mile in the shoes of those that you are uh, now working with. And I've always felt like the greatest gift that will come from the opioid epidemic, you know, there's, there's giant losses, of course, but the greatest gift is going to be those that have been through it and recovering and then helping others along that path as well. Those that could, that can be related to say that walked a mile in my shoes. Um, and I think we're seeing that a lot of places right now. A lot of the references within the least of us uh, are in Northern Kentucky uh, or in Portsmouth, Ohio and other parts of Ohio where people have um, been through it and been able to then apply those experiences and that journey to those that are coming after them, not only giving them giving purpose 
to their recovery and giving them a place where they can succeed, but also pulling others along as well. Do you feel that that gives you um, in, in deviate a unique experience to say, yeah, listen, I've, I've been there. I've felt this. I know what you're going through. Let's do it together. Yeah. Um, you know, if you just look at the opioid issue, uh, I think that it's critical that the folks that have had a past be able to share it without fear of judgment. And so the breaking down of the stigma is important because the, the 12% of the population that, it, that that is addicted, it's not enough to really push the needle forward in a large scale. It's only 12% of the people, you know, and we need, you know, kind of herd immunity in this as well. It's really going to take all of us. And so what we found is that, you know, there's really two ways to look at this second chance employment thing. Number one, it is becoming an employer, kind of like what we do at DV8, and that's important. But really what we found is that we really need to talk to everybody, not just the 12% that might have a vested interest because they had addiction, because the 80% that's uh, 80 or 90% that's left, we really need them to be employers. We really need them to understand what it's going to take to become relational for people that have had a tough go of this. And, and for us to contextualize that this issue is going to really rise the tide for all boats if we make the folks that have gone through and gone into recovery, uh, if we really help them. Because as a community, do we want them to relapse? Do we want them to be, you know, reincarcerated? Do we want them to, to not be successful and, uh, and, and be able to provide for their family? Because what does that do? It puts our whole society into a bind. And so it's incumbent upon not only the people that have been through it, but all of us as a society to kind of recognize that we can be part of the solution, even if it's just as an employer. But that's actually one of the most important aspects. I mean, it's, it's, I think that one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, feel, we, we personally feel like we're a small solution, uh, that, that we can't build that bridge from addiction to recovery. But I think that's, the, I think that's what we're seeing, is that recovery isn't about one person biting off the, you know, biting off and, and eating, chewing up that entire elephant. It's about dozens and dozens, each adding their own little piece, their own little plank on the bridge. And then once we get all of those together, that's when we have a, a, a smooth transition. And for us in healthcare, so much of it is pulling down those barriers. You know, whatever barriers may be there, you know, especially just recently over the holiday weekend, I mean, holidays, is access to recovery, weekends, after hours, um, environments that they're going back to, understanding the rest of the story. What is really the addiction may be part of the symptom, but what is really the what got us to that point? Because if we don't find and identify and treat that, um, whether it's childhood trauma, you know, rape, abuse, whatever it may be, then we really aren't we aren't fixing the the, the problem. We're fixing addressing trying to address a symptom. And I think that's one of the important things that uh, folks like yourself and your wife are doing is is pulling in and not only with your prior experience, 
uh, and expertise uh, within the restaurant business, but adding that piece, pulling down one of those barriers of giving folks an opportunity, because after drug abuse uh, and, and substance abuse, it is it's incredibly difficult, whether it's the convictions, whether it's the lack of a driver's license, whatever it may be, there's so many barriers um, of getting folks kind of on that path. And every, and every roadblock is an opportunity to uh, not to take, uh, take the uh, name of your restaurant, but to deviate them off the path uh, that they need to be on. Any closing thoughts? And then also as well, how can folks uh, get in touch with you uh, if they have further questions? Because folks like yourself, folks like we're seeing in Portsmouth, Ohio, Northern Kentucky, they're really kind of groundswelling that, that groundswell of, of public buy-in, of, of taking their expertise and giving opportunity uh, to folks who are emerging from this uh, very dark part of their lives are really what it's going to take. It's not going to be just the doctors or the, or the recovery centers or whatever it may, or law enforcement. It's going to be communities coming together to build those bridges. So any summaries and how can folks get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, we have several different ways that you can get in touch with us. We have deviatekitchen.com. Uh, here's my personal number, 859-321-5600. Seriously, uh, if we could help in any way, we're, we're really there. We want to try to figure out how not only to be uh, you know, a relational employer to the folks that we have at, at DVA, but, but share the benefits with other businesses. Uh, we started a foundation that also includes education to other, uh, you know, for-profit businesses and nonprofit businesses to try to figure out how you can enter the field of second chances um, and how to do it by learning from all the mistakes that we made. And uh, we've done a bunch of research and 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 how you can really lessen the severity of the financial issues and also mitigate your risk, right? So. Um, We'd be happy to help in any way we can. And wrapping up for us here, as I mentioned uh, with the interview with Sam, uh, with the story of Starla Haas out of Elizabethan, um, who uh, ended up in a nursing home after an overdose uh, while pregnant and gave birth to Bella. Um, Starla Haas passed away about seven years um, after uh, Bella was born. And... um, and I think one of the most important things that we can do, uh, as if you're fortunate enough to not be directly impacted uh, by uh, by addiction or substance abuse, is understanding that on the other side of that addiction is a human being. And um, when her mother died, when Starla died, uh, Bella had a cake made, and it actually the inscription also ended up on the uh, grave marker as well. And from a seven-year-old, it says, "I love you, no matter what happened." and understanding that these children, and we have these huge generations now of of children that are growing up without parents or parents that are still suffering from addiction or being cared for by their family members, Uh, but they still care for the family member. They still care for their parents and and they, they want to love them. They want them to be there. And I think every single one of us needs to do everything that we can uh, to add our small piece to that bridge of recovery. And so, uh, Rob, I appreciate it. One, first and foremost, I thought your phone number was fake when you sent it to me because you've got such a, uh, is it 321 See, it's easy to remember because it's like, that, that has to be a business number. Uh, it's like the trunk number. 
Um, but uh, I really appreciate you being willing to jump on with us here, uh, adds to the story um, as part of our author series for the ASAP Frontline. And, uh, and uh, appreciate your time. And I will see some of your folks here in about 45 minutes when I pull up at uh, Saul Good for some of my favorite melt your face type hot burger action there. That is my action point. That's what I love. So I really appreciate it, uh, Rob, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. As for me, you can contact me at rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, at EverydayMed on Twitter. I invite you to not only listen, share, like, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you like. It's on most of them. If you've got one that it's not on, let me know. We'll work on getting it there. Until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. Frontline.